to be able to take what we've built and take that in a direction that further enhances and leverages all of the knowledge that's out there. There's so much knowledge, untapped knowledge, that really helps to transform the service management experience for clients. But not only for uh, clients uh, that IBM has today, and certainly those clients that exist worldwide, but for those that are not yet part of our ecosystem, Welcome to another episode of Pioneers of Possible, the show that connects you with the futurists, leaders, dreamers, and builders who have reshaped what's possible in the worlds of business and technology. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host and fellow technologist. So today I have the pleasure of having with me in the studio Nick Fuller. Now, Nick is the Senior Manager of Cognitive Service Foundations at IBM Research, And he's also a master inventor and the lead researcher for the IBM services platform for Watson. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Des. Glad to be here. You've had about 20 years, uh, from what I can tell, uh, of combined uh, experience in scientific research and also uh, uh, commercial business and management. You've done some amazing things here. I'm I'm just looking at some of the notes I made. Uh, uh, The one that really jumps out is you hold 63 patents. Yeah, that's so. I got my PhD at Columbia, and uh, in my PhD study, I focused on semiconductor technology and microelectronics. And IBM, as a leader in the information technology space, jumped out at me as one of those places I wanted to join upon uh, graduating from Columbia. So when I joined IBM, I joined as a research staff member in, in specifically in the semiconductor and material science space. And, uh, you know, that involved developing capabilities for IBM microprocessors. The beauty of IBM and one of the reasons I chose IBM is is because of its vertical integration throughout the information technology stack. And so as I went along and developed expertise in in what it meant to to build devices for IBM systems and for IBM clients, uh, I got exposed to other things, uh, the software stack, services built on top of of those various uh, software applications running for IBM. And as I got exposed to those additional things, I gradually migrated into these other areas. Along the way, coming up with some unique ideas, which led to uh, patents being filed and ultimately issued, and and now the classification that you identified as an IBM master inventor. Uh, You're originally from um, Trinidad and Tobago, is that right? Correct. And uh, I read the, in the notes there that uh, as a kid, you love playing soccer. I, um, I love seeing that because uh, I, I love soccer. And in fact, my 12-year-old son is a soccer fanatic. He plays both indoor soccer, they call futsal, and outdoor soccer yes. uh, uh, during a summer. And uh, there are days where uh, I swear the kid goes to bed with a thing, a, t- a soccer ball attached to his foot. Has that, has that carried through into your adult life? Do you still get out and kick a ball around and uh, just keep fit? I, I do, I do. In fact, uh, we have a, a corporate team here at IBM. So I'm at the IBM uh, research location in Westchester, New York, 45 minutes north of New York City. And one of the beautiful things is that uh, at this campus, we uh, sort of have most of the players that make up the IBM corporate team in the New York area. And we've played uh, many years in that corporate league against other companies located in the Westchester area. And in my office, you know, I have, I have different plaques and books and whatnot. But the thing I tell people when they walk into my office that I'm most proud of is that uh, trophy that we have from the indoor competition a few years ago. 
I love it. Uh, I'm really fascinated to learn a bit more about this um, uh, work you've done with 63 patents. Uh, that's, that's just phenomenal. Can you give us a, a quick uh, insight into how you came about being able to, to apply yourself to so many patents? But is there one that you either feel really proud about or you think that's just really made a difference that uh, you sort of, you know, it's like your soccer plug on the wall. You look at it and think, yeah, I'm really, really glad I did that one. Yeah, you know, there are two schools of thought here, and I got to admit, I've embraced both, right? Once you're immersed into the development of technology in in any domain, really, uh, that immersion process, uh, as you go along building new capability for a project, right, for a project that's either near-term or or future and far-reaching, ideas come to you. And as those ideas come to you, you discover whether or not there's the opportunity to create an invention. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is simply collecting as a group of people or as an individual and having random thought and process about what particular invention could be useful based on your wealth of expertise or based on challenges uh, that are out there in in the technological and and general human domains. And quite frankly, uh, you know, across the 63 It's probably a 60-40, 70-30 split for me, 70-60 coming from, you know, being immersed in it and the other 30 to 40 percent or so coming from ideas that came upon, you know, a random drive or or what have you. Oh, that's interesting. So I guess if I was to paraphrase that and correct me if I'm wrong, you've you've got somewhere just in your general day-to-day work, you looked at it and realized, you know, I can turn that into a thing and and, and it's become a patent versus somewhere you'd be striving along and have this epiphany, this aha moment and thought, hang on a second, I can take that idea and I can turn it into a thing. Is, is that fair to say? That's absolutely right. In fact, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few, many years ago when I was building technology for IBM uh, devices uh, classified as the 65 nanometer, 45 nanometer technology node, stuff that runs today in our Power 7 systems and Power 8 systems, Power 7 systems uh, used incidentally for our initial uh, unveiling of Watson capability, right? Uh, there was a particular problem that we faced in terms of how you build those uh, devices and the wires for those devices uh, in such a way that they remained pristine. Right, so that you didn't have any reliability issues later on, so that right. your cell phone or your device would, no matter what the conditions are, spikes in temperature, what have you, and, and that you know process of trying to build that pristine circuit based on changes that were happening at the time, as devices were getting smaller and smaller, led to us coming up with a, an invention that was pretty unique, uh, that was relatively bulletproof in that regard, and, and very different from anything else that was out there. Yeah, it's, I, I can imagine that you, um, you know, when we when we look at the history of computing in general, and IBM certainly uh, being out there on the bleeding edge constantly. I remember reading about Seymour Cray when he went from um, hand-wired circuits uh, where they could, you know, I think it was the original Cray 1, I remember reading, and he physically just, you know, wrapped wire around pins to build these parallel CPUs. Uh, at some point, he realized he just physically couldn't get enough wire into the cabinet, and the cabinet was going to be a mile long, and they had to make that same transition. I imagine there's a point where, as he did, you know, you go back to a, a clean piece of paper and go, well, okay, how am I going to take this from a hand-wrapped wire to a, to a circuit? How, how do you approach a problem like that? I'm really interested just to quickly get some insight. So if you get to that point where you're looking at a, a number of big technological waves and you've got a core component that um, is under, underpinning that, is there a particular, um, I guess, approach or problem-solving uh, regime that you've developed over the years? Or is it just a case that you throw some effort at it and, and, and just a lot of smart people in the room solve it? You know, sometimes it's a bit of both, to be honest, because in, in the environment that we're in, right, with 
IBM research has been labeled accurately so as an industrial university. And, and we certainly have been an industrial university. If you go back in its history, uh, up to the point maybe in the early to mid 90s. Thereafter, you know, with, with uh, economic challenges and what have you, uh, IBM research had to evolve as the rest of the world evolved. And for that reason, it's one of the last standing uh, corporate research institutions that, that exist. And, and so the reason I say it's a bit of both, because with that transition in the uh, mid to early 90s, there about, right, you certainly have to step back when you talk about a paradigm shift, right, which is essentially what you're alluding to. When you talk about a paradigm shift, you need to, you do need to step back and take a look at, well, what is this new paradigm going to be like? Think it out, right? And understand the boundary conditions, the parameters that are going to influence it and so on. But then you can get into a paralysis and analysis, if you see what I'm saying. Absolutely. If you never do anything about it and, and pontificate endlessly ad infinitum on, on what might be. And so at some point you do have to take a, a stab and put a stake in the ground and, and go out there and try to define what that new paradigm may look like. And I, I guess uh, in some ways, um, is it fair to say that that kind of approach is kind of how we got to where we are today, where a lot of people talk about fail and fail fast, and that is that, uh, you know, as you said, don't sit there and just think about it forever. You'll never do anything, but, uh, you know, try and try again until you do succeed, as they say. Um, and we see a lot of companies doing this now where instead of spending their entire one-year budget on, on one moonshot, they might try five or six different things to see if one's going to fly, and if they don't, they shut them down quickly to avoid having a failure. I can imagine that attempting to go from 65 nanometers to 45 nanometers, I mean, you know, for folk who don't understand what it means to move electrons around and, and physical components, um, that's probably like getting from here to Pluto and back on one, one cut lunch, right? <laughs> You're absolutely right. You know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head with the methodology of, of fail and fail quickly, right? And, and if you think about it, uh, what that has done in, in the software world is to dramatically shorten cycles and has led to the advent of, of DevOps and microservices and all, all the various buzz terms we, we hear about today in, in, in cloud computing and machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it's absolutely essential uh, for uh, you know modern technology companies today to be successful whether you're a, a behemoth enterprise that has evolved much in the way that we have or a startup that's quickly nimble and doing things on the fly so i was really interested to, to learn about your your um your life path so before we dive into some of the details of, of what it actually means to be inside ibm and particularly your role uh, around uh, the, the whole mal management challenge of that Cognitive Services Foundation space. I, I would love to get some insight for a couple of minutes just on, on your life journey, uh, how, you, how you sort of um, cope with the challenge of sort of coming to a new country, start going through the study uh, journey you've been through and your academic path, and then uh, the actual journey into IBM. Um, are there insights you could share with folk who might be looking at a similar uh, type of challenge in life where they're thinking, well, I... Uh, you know, whether I'm going to move country or not, uh, whether I go to a new school or college or uni, I want to do something academic with my life. I don't really know what my end job's going to be like. What kind of things could you share around your personal journey of sort of coming out of uh, Trinidad and Tobago into, into the US, into, uh, you know, studying in academia and then moving into a more of a management role? It's, it's a fascinating question, right? If I think back to essentially 1993 when I uh, left the shores of, of Trinidad and Tobago after having graduated from high school, uh, Fatima College specifically, uh, and uh, entering into uh, undergrad at Morehouse College in Atlanta. 
you know, the, the motivating factor for me there was uh, I was heavily driven, incredibly driven, insatiably driven to pursue, uh, you know, my, my academic uh, goals, uh, infused and influenced in many ways by the teachers I had in school, by, by you know, parents, uh, and, and also by video, right? I, I watched a lot of uh, technology shows on television at the time, Science right. and Technology was a very popular program back then uh, that ran on, on CNN. And I, I was certainly fascinated with what science offered and the possibility. And so upon leaving high school, I knew I wanted to go away, not because of, of uh, a desire to, to quickly leave Trinidad and Tobago per se, but to, to broaden my reach and go where you know there was a higher density and propensity of science and technology research in particular uh, occurring. So this led to the, to the, to the uh, undergraduate phase, if you will, majoring in math and physics, uh, while majoring in math and physics, doing a number of internships uh, at different places throughout that four-year period and ultimately deciding that research was my future and applying to graduate school. As a young guy at about age 14, I think just turning into a teenager and really figuring out life, uh, I was shipped to New Zealand and um, and started college there, and I had a similar experience that you just mentioned that you know discovered TV and I found TV programs, but I used to sit there and be fascinated by some of the the, the documentaries are about other countries around the world, around the world technologies coming through, and uh, and I think it was like Bill Nye the Science Guy stuff that came on. It was one of the few times in my life that my mum wouldn't say to me, "Stop watching TV if I was watching <laughs> science." Um, right. So they're pretty big influences in our lives, aren't they? Really, some of those mediums where you know. I mean, uh, you know, if people are just watching uh, junk content, then it's just fun to have it. But I think it's it's probably fair to say that, as you've just highlighted, and certainly it was in my case, that a lot of those technologies at the time, like television and certainly radio in my case, they're quite influential and, and they build quite foundational views of the world and they give us a broad reach to other things. And I guess now the internet's kind of that in many ways, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. You know, and, and what's interesting about what you just said, and certainly applies in my case, right, you talk about the challenges in, in moving from one place to another. I was a 19-year-old, right, who lived uh, at home and, and in my parents' home at that before leaving. And uh, once I left, you know, the, the, the experience of a culture shock uh, unexpectedly uh, hit me very aggressively, uh, very significantly, quite, quite major. And, and what helped in that regard was the fact that I did come abroad for a particular reason, right? There was a passion that was drawing me further. And I got, that was sort of my refuge, my salvage, okay? And so I, I never stopped looking at those programs as I came abroad. It, it continued to be that refuge. And of course, engaged in coursework and, and then going through the internship experience in different places. Also being adventurous helped in that regard. So and as much as there was that culture shock, that adventurous nature of my personality fueled with the uh, academic uh, scientific drive certainly helped to make that overall experience quite pleasurable. Oh, I can totally relate to the culture shock. Uh, yeah, I've, I've had a very similar experience coming out of, uh, you know, basically jungle life to, to I went from a, a tree jungle to a concrete jungle in many ways. And, 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 and sometimes I walk through Sydney looking at the big tall skyscrapers and, and the culture shock comes back and I realize I'm in just a different type of jungle. Tell me about the internship program. And I'm, I'm interested because a lot of people I talk to at IBM have a very similar story to tell. They've, they've gone through interesting academic backgrounds, but there's a point in time where their internships where they they realize that they really want to apply what they're learning. Did you have a similar experience by any chance where you sort of, through the, a number of the internships you've managed, you mentioned, was there one or, or two that sort of you looked at and thought, you know what, 
this may not be the exact job I want to do, but this is going to go and put me into the path that I think I want to currently. Because, I mean, I think you're probably, like all of us, we get to a certain point in life at different ages. I mean, whether it's 19 when you went to the US and study, whether it was 25 when you were doing something else or whatever, an internship. How, I guess, how influential was the internship is my question um, experience for you. It was highly influential. No, no doubt in my mind about that. I did it every year. And uh, the summer of what what is termed uh, the junior year in the U.S., which is the third year of the four-year degree, turned out to be that pivotal moment. I, I interned at a Tyco subsidiary, uh, or at least it used to be a Tyco subsidiary in, in the Boston area, uh, in, in the microelectronics space as well. And uh, with that experience, I knew definitively not only did I want to go on into graduate school and get my PhD in that area, but uh, become deanfully employed with the likes of an IBM and Intel. Texas Instruments was also quite prominent back then upon graduation. With all of that said and getting to know you a bit better, um, I'd really like to delve into kind of what it means now on a day-to-day basis to kind of work at IBM and particularly your current role. Could you maybe give us some insights into specifically what your role entails in your Cognitive Services Foundation space and particularly in the IBM research world? What does a typical day look like? What, what does that sort of entail as far as the role itself is, is concerned and, 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 and the types of things you bring to that role? Yes, it's, a, it's an excellent question, right? And it, it sort of piggybacks off other stuff that you've asked before in many ways because it, it begs, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And, and we constantly revisit that question. And the interesting thing for me in this role, right, I lead the global strategy for IBM research on... Uh, what is recently announced, the IBM services platform with Watson. It's a managed services platform which provides clients with the opportunity to manage their environments, right, and uh, manage those environments using services that run on the platform as well as from our ecosystem partners. But more importantly, that's all well and good. It leverages cloud capability, and that's uh, quite significant in terms of our step forward as IBM. But the additional piece to this is the infusion of uh, insights from Watson and intelligence from Watson, right? So with the Watson brand, we leverage a number of different artificial intelligence algorithms and APIs that help us uh, improve uh, service quality for our clients so that they can focus on business outcomes. And my role in research is to bring uh, together that capability from a uh, N plus one perspective, you know, what's next as well, or what's even beyond N plus one to the market for that platform. In the, in the, Past IBM has often been seen as a, a very um, proprietary software-focused uh, company, and, and, and they've done very well out of that. But of late, and certainly uh, as late as uh, an event, the IBM Interconnect event that I had the opportunity to go to at Las Vegas, uh, the the opening day, I mean, there was like day one through to three of the event, but day zero, I called it day zero, the Sunday prior it was actually an open source focused micro summit or mini summit. It seems to me that IBM has has, has opened its mind to uh, the adoption of open source in many ways and leveraging open source. And when you look at the the Watson stack itself, I mean, obviously you're building capabilities on top of that. But there there's some fairly big fundamental pieces now where IBM has almost sort of gone. You know, we don't need to own everything. We just need to own the capability of the stack. And whether it's the Linux operating system or whether it's Apache components. Uh, whether it's the likes of the Hadoop stack or, or Java. In, in the 20-odd years of your working life, has this been something you've seen come about now as this, this um, shift in potentially in the early days where, where IBM had to invent the technology, let's say, in the mainframe era because there was nothing prior and you had to build that stuff versus now leveraging the best of breed of technologies to get a rapid outcome and get to the market? 
Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, right? This, this is a shift that I've seen as you've articulated, you know, a second ago. And if you think about it, what's the ultimate goal, right? Uh, there's certainly the, the, the human goal, but the ultimate goal uh, is, to, is to drive that innovation to, to your client base, impact your client base positively and grow your client base, right? And with that as the goal, how do you establish that ecosystem, right? Uh, you know, in some ways, uh, you can argue that one of the days where you're able to do that completely are proprietary based. Not, not that there isn't innovation that you would have to add, that, that it's company specific, uh, but leveraging uh, an open source standard, an open source uh, platform approach to many of these areas allows you to acquire that ecosystem. And we, we've you know, made this transition, as, as you point out, and we are seeing the successes of that. And you, you talked about Interconnect. I happened to be there, there as well. And, and that's certainly a resounding message, not only from the session you spoke about, but also from the folks who joined us on stage uh, for the, the main events uh, at the kickoff. And it's been a really positive thing I've seen that as the, the team has grown and matured and over time the technologies around the, the brand IBM has matured and the market has matured, to see that Sunday where we had this sort of kind of a birds of a feather micro summit of one day, um, you know, we, we had IBMers on the stage in suits throwing T-shirts at people in the crowd for fun. And, and that's the sort of thing you see at an open source geek summit, not an IBM thing. And I, I, I remember doing a podcast with uh, Jeff Spicer from the analytics team. And, and I said to him, uh, this is a really exciting thing to see because, uh, you know, IBM is kind of just loosening up and, and, and doing new and innovative things and moving quickly. Is there a technology like that for you where you look at it and it's just for whatever reason, either it's really technically exciting and sexy or it's just been solved a really great problem for you or you've been involved in it? Is there one that just jumps out given all the things that you worked on currently that you're really, really passionate about? Yeah, no, there are two things that, that really stand out for me in, in this regard. If I may, you ask for one, so I'll cheat and give you two. No, two's, two's <laughs> great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, and, you know, and, and the first one I'd like to highlight actually falls under what I'd call the umbrella category, right? It's this uh, platform that we've launched. We launched this July 12th. We've had uh, a number of client interactions, analyst interactions on the platform and its capabilities around how do you transform what it means to provide a managed solution for a client through the entire life cycle, right? From designing that solution to building it, uh, to then going to the management state, if you will, and then how you optimize that, right? And what underlines that entire thing? The fact that it's fueled by IBM's data lake in this space, you know, uh, which is enriched through data from thousands of clients. Uh, this uh, entire life cycle, which on top of that now has uh, the uh, elements of, of Watson infused through natural language processing, machine learning, all of the above begins to, to really uh, not only resonate uh, across the client base, it resonates internally for me as well, because I see how we're transforming uh, the process of just addressing incidents, uh, addressing compliance, how you leverage the knowledge from one uh, space to another, from one client to another, in the operational data that you own to improve the original solution that you might design for a client coming in who has a simple software stack that they want you to manage for them. This uh, capability that we've launched, which is really a, a combination of multiple technologies, if you will, really stands out for me from that point of view. It seems to me that when you're talking about things like compliance and client journey and life cycle, um, 
with IBM, I think it's a case that it isn't just that, that you're going to solve one financial problem or one compliance problem or one governance problem. You tend to tackle the whole thing. So when something like the US-EU Data Shield came about, um, IBM was quick to the market with a, with a solution that solved that problem from woe to go. Now the EU GDPR thing's coming out with a global data protection regulation. Every single thing that an organization does is going to be touched. And I think many people tend to disagree until we walk through it in detail. But I'm of the view that GDPR doesn't just impact EU and EU companies. It impacts everyone because when you start thinking about the whole supply chain challenge, if I buy a product in Australia that's supplied by a company in Australia that deals with somebody in US who deals with someone in the EU, there's data moving around and that data has got to be protected. Even if it's just my name and a postal address, that data has to make its way in and out of companies that are in early Europe. What, when, you, when you do a client engagement, are they the types of things that they would bring to you and say, look, you know, we don't just want you to solve the front door. We, just, we don't want you to just solve the back office. We want to go from front to back. How, how, you know, the type of engagement you deal with, is it usually the case that you're asked to look at the entire 360-degree view of the world and see how you can approach that? Um, or, is it, or is it more the case that you tend to deep dive into particular verticals and, and solve them? Yeah, it depends really on, on who the client is and what their ask is, right? Uh, I think you get both scenarios for sure occurring and perhaps many in between, right? Just recently, we met with a, a client a couple of weeks ago, right? And and they had some of the uh, concerns that you mentioned here. They had security concerns, compliance concerns, right? In terms of uh, multi-party relationships that they had. So they were very much interested in blockchain and what we were doing, currently doing in blockchain, right? So we spoke to them about that. In addition to that, they, they currently manage all of their applications and their infrastructure, but they're standing up applications on the cloud, Right. So from that point of view, how do you manage that that hybrid infrastructure? So uh, IBM services platform with Watson is something they wanted to hear more about from the compliance perspective, from the perspective of shadow IT, since, you know, many of their developers are standing up apps in the cloud as well. And so the, the breadth was certainly more appealing to this particular client. But then there are clients who are either existing clients or they have a burning issue, right? And they come to us and they'd like us to, you know, really address that issue. If they're not a client, that typically is not a bad discussion. If they're an existing client and, and we have challenges that, with execution, otherwise, uh, you know, that's causing a burning issue, those tend to be some of the more difficult discussions to have. But certainly that, you know, you, you build your reputation on how you handle those uh, situations. I, I, remember, um, I remember seeing um, uh, Everledger come out and, and using IBM's uh, Hyperledger blockchain to apply the Kimberley process to um, tracking diamonds and avoiding the blood diamond challenge. In fact, um, uh, uh, and it's a favorite for me, of course, because it's an Australian uh, company. But um, I remember seeing the CEO, she jumped on the stage, at Interconnect and talked about that. And you would have seen that right. as well. Yes. <laughs> and, and it was another reminder that like, you know, um, the whole, you know, when you look at a lot of people sort of looking to go, oh, you know, they're the mainframe company or they do the cloud or they do, you know, Watson Big Data. And I remember reading your, your um, notes, uh, and I think this is something that's probably really uh, dear to your heart. Uh, there was a note about uh, your your focus and, and on, I guess, diversity in the workforce uh, in many ways and um, the sort of work you do on bringing young folk in through the same processes you've had and developing career paths and getting the sorts of opportunities you have. Could you share some thoughts around um, what that actually is and, and how you go about making that happen and some of the, the, the benefits that might bring to an organization? Because I think, you know, we've got a very mobile workforce around the world now. We've got a lot of migration of human beings around the planet. And uh, the scale and size of IBM tends to lead itself to a very diverse and multicultural uh, uh, workforce. Can you share some insights and in kind of what that means to you personally and then what it's sort of what it's reflected into in, in a day-to-day work environment? 
Yeah, no, no, good question. So, uh, you know, personally, right, uh, having diversity of background, diversity of thought, diversity of ethnicity, diversity, diversity in all the possible uh, uh, dimensions that you could think about uh, helps uh, to enrich that experience for any individual, uh, not only from a project perspective, but also uh, that, that personal and, uh, relationship perspective as teams come together to work on solving challenging problems, right? And, you know, gone are the days, you know, if, if those days ever existed, candidly, where you're going to make you know, inroads into to major challenges and issues by pulling together one one subset uh, of the planet. And so, in, in that regard, if you if you stroll through uh, this environment here at IBM Research, uh, you, you would you would be hard pressed to not find a represent representative, excuse me, from any one of the multiple dimensions that you could identify. So, so I think that's helpful on, on point number one. Point number two, right? Uh, for us here, you know, it takes two forms on how we we uh, can attract and and, and you know, bring in such folk and how I actively engage in that process. One is in the internship process where we bring in folks for, you know, students at the PhD, master's and bachelor's level uh, for summer periods, right? And we do apply uh, various structured programs to help to ensure that we get a diverse uh, population coming in, not only uh, domestically, but also internationally. Uh, and secondly, in terms of people that we hire, right, uh, there's a hiring process. We've revamped that, you know, to, to address how dynamic the environment is today with, you know, you've brought out the point about mobility in the workforce and so on. And in that regard, we have structured programs there as well that I'm an active participant in to ensure that, you know, we, we maintain the blend that we have. And in areas where we're challenged, we address those challenges. Yeah, I think I think that's a great insight, and and you know, um, in many ways, uh, that's the sort of thing that we take for granted here in Australia as well, because it's an extremely multicultural nation. We've got people all around the world here, and um, and and we've got a smaller population, so we have to draw on all of that multicultural, diverse uh, mix and blend of people from different races and creeds and nations and backgrounds. Uh, and in many ways, that becomes our strength as a nation. And, and it sounds like you've been able to boil it down into a company, as far as IBM goes. Before we run out of time, I'd love to do a couple of things with you just in rapid fire, if I can, in, in many ways, as I mentioned before, kind of like a speed dating thing. Um, I've got a couple of things I'd really love to get some insights on, and then I would love to throw to you to get um, your sort of over the horizon, uh, and it's a pun that I've been dying to throw at you, the what's on the horizon um, over the next 12 to 18 months. In speed date format, uh, really quickly, is there a particular epiphany that's driven your uh, life philosophy in general? So is there something that stood out in life that, that really just defined you in, in, in some ways and sort of gave you your underpinning philosophy in life? You know, have fun doing what you're doing, right? Uh, have a passion about it. If you don't have a passion about it, you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, and hopefully that passion is unifi unifi unified in some way, excuse me, uh, with also impacting humanitarily positively. Maybe that's through, uh, you know, the diversity effort that I, I drive in, in the job market, or maybe that's even directly in, in sort of like the blood diamond work that you brought up a second ago. That's sort of my underlying philosophy, essentially. Is there a particular uh, early influence that jumps to mind uh, in, in rapid fire or a speed dating format? If, if someone was to say to you, you know, if you're in a speed dating scenario in the city, you know, what's the most influential person in your life? Is there someone, is there one person or a couple of people in life that you look back now, particularly in childhood, that really influenced you and, and helped and supported drive you towards this sort of life passion you've obviously got now in, in business and technology? Yeah, it's my, it's my mother. Uh, my mother played an, an incredible role in, in shaping and owning uh, where I am. Uh, she stands out uh, at the top of that list. Other people certainly played their part, but, but she would be number one. 
I love that. Um, yeah, I think I think I would have the very same thing about my dear mum, my dad. <laughs> my dad's probably unimpressed if he hears that. But uh, is there a particular hobby beyond soccer that uh, that you're really passionate about? I remember seeing some stuff around reading and writing and poetry and so forth. Is there a particular passion outside of work that that you gravitate towards? That's like your go to just for a bit of downtime. Yeah. So outside of soccer, that would have to be writing. I, I just completed a ten-year project where I, I wrote a personal memoir that I that I published. It's called Struggle and Progress, and and that was the culmination in many ways of poetry that I did before. And so what I've realized is that this introspection that I apply technically, I, I apply it elsewhere, and it, it leads to stuff that I didn't know I like to do, but I but I do it clearly, and I like doing it when, when I have some downtime. But ten years—that's a—that's a work of passion. But it sounds like something I'd love to read. So when it comes on out, I'll—I'll I'll, I'll hit you up for a copy to review and read. One of the things—one of the things I—I I made a note of um, as we were talking here is um, you obviously have a very good long vision, long-term vision on things that you, you know you solve problems here and now for for either the business or technology or for clients. But it seems to me that you've got a, a very long-term vision. Uh, if the, if that's a fair comment, what specifically is your vision for the future? Where do you th- you know if if you're going to summarize it quickly, where do you think we're going uh, just as a planet, as a people, and and wh- where IBM's going as far as that vision for the future goes? Uh, there's a, a wealth of stuff that's happening today that we've built on, right? Uh, gone are the days where we had to to worry about, say, uh, in the IT space, for example, where microprocessor speed was the bottleneck, right? That's no longer the case, right? We take the hardware for granted and and now a lot of stuff is governed primarily by the software that runs on top of that. You know, my, my vision, though, for the future is that we continuously embrace science and technology for the problems that we face to advance the human condition. If I was to underline it in one statement, it would be that statement. So whether it's climate change, whether it's issues around poverty, whether it's issues around inequalities that span the world, where we can leverage science and technology to address those issues, like the work we're doing with Watson and education to transform learning capabilities for people who are disenfranchised in different parts of the world, I think it's pivotal. The work you mentioned uh, in South Africa and in Australia around blood diamonds, right, that was announced at Interconnect. I think that too is pivotal. And there are many, many, many more, right? Climate change, of course, is a big one. We just uh, wrapping up hurricane season here uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and we've seen catastrophic damage from uh, hurricanes. And I think anyone who subscribes to the notion that climate change is a hoax is ignoring the data. And so how do we leverage all of this capability and the incredible advancement in compute power that we've achieved to the point where we are today to solve some of these challenges? And that would be the best thing we could do for humanity. I'd like to now, before we wrap up, throw my my, my uh, question that I mentioned to you before of kind of the crystal ball gazing, um, specifically around you, and then and and I guess then more broadly around um, what you and your role uh, across the whole services space uh, and the platform uh, is going to look like. If you were to gaze into the crystal ball and uh, and sort of look over, over the horizon in the next twelve to eighteen months, um, particularly around the work where you're doing the service platform on, on Watson, uh, my favourite pun would be, you know, in your mind over the next twelve to eighteen months, what's on the horizon? Yeah, we we are we hope to be able to take what we've built and take that in a direction that further enhances. 
enhances and leverages all of the knowledge that's out there. There's so much knowledge, untapped knowledge, uh, you know, that's out there that we want to uh, formalize in data stores and whatnot. That really helps to transform the service management experience for clients. But not only for uh, clients uh, that IBM has today, and certainly those clients that exist worldwide, but for those that are not yet part of our ecosystem, in, from the point of view of how they're going to grow, the growth for these types of clients is in the overall hybrid space. And one of the things we're tackling here, in addition to the knowledge space, uh, through a Watson and cognitive capability is what happens for hybrid workloads that most enterprises are either running or will be running and providing capabilities to help you with workloads that you're running on the cloud as well as your on-premise traditional stuff that's also mission critical is ultimately where we want to be. So that hybrid space uh, for us uh, continues to be quite pivotal uh, overall from a service management point of view. No, I like that, and 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 um, I think that's a nice way for us to wrap up because we've we've moved away from sort of the you know a, a lot of the design patterns that were still very heavily sort of you know mainframe and terminal orientated to now microservices and Kubernetes and Docker and 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 edge computing and and now when we look at what we see coming out of IBM around the Watson space and certainly some of the you know when when I log into my email when I when I check my bank account when I when I have a look at what's happening on social media or or, or if I um you know, use some application in the back end. Invariably, what I'm seeing now when I look at the screen, whether it's a mobile tablet or a phone or a laptop, I often stop and, and just take a moment and think, what's behind that? What's powering that up? And I think you've just summarized very nicely the sorts of things that over the next year and a half that we're going to sort of be looking at. And, and ideally, we'd like to invite listeners and businesses that, that tune into this show and, and tune into this particular episode to sort of look at and go, well, um, you know, out of everything you've heard today, um, you know, is there an opportunity to reach out to you and, and to look at the types of things you've done in your life, the types of experiences you've had? Can they glean some insight from this uh, show today? But also, um, where could you potentially help, or, or whether it's you personally or IBM as an organization, help them get to that journey that they want to go in the next 12 to 18 months and help adopt some of those technologies you're building, use some of those services platforms, uh, get their hand, you know, roll their sleeves up and get their hands on the Watson services platform and put them to good use. So, Nick Fuller, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks a lot, Des. Great being here. Thank you.